Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. As we pick up there, just a quick little short review of some of the things we talked about last week, where we talk about the idea of God's plan, and particularly that plan involving the role of faith of the individual in having a saved relationship with the Creator and God our Father. And so we've talked about how it is through faith, or it is faith, uh, in the one faith that grants us access into the grace of God, and and that is made available for both Jews and Gentiles, for all people. We all have the same access, so we can all share together in the kindness of our Creator. We talked about last week the idea how in that plan of God and in God's choosing, uh, it also includes that Jews can be restored back. You know, those who, because of unbelief, have been cut off or uh, you know, separated from God, if they'll turn to God in faith through Christ Jesus, they can be restored back into that fellowship of God's grace and able to partake of that richness of God's blessings, particularly being fellow members and fellow heirs in God's family. And that's for all who come to God through his Son by faith. Israel was and is beloved. That's one of the things brought out in, in the chapter. Yeah. And, and so the idea, God hasn't stopped loving Israel he loved, you know, he, it was part of God's plan, and now the Israel of God is a spiritual Israel, and, and Israel is beloved. It, it is his chosen children, and, and so in that, he talks a little bit about, in chapter 11, the idea that God's gifts and God's calling are irrevocable, and that is God has worked out his plan just as he promised, just as he said he would. And so that's why salvation is available to all men. You know, no matter you know, who they are, they can be saved through Jesus Christ because God you know, has made that gift available. God has kept his promise. It is part of his very character and nature that God, you know, God does not change. And it is for that reason you know, God is trustworthy. You can put your trust in God. And, and, and that trust is impartial. That's why salvation is accessible and available to, you know, no matter what your, your background has been, no matter what, you know, your race may be, you know, here in the context of the New Testament, whether you are a Jew or whether you are of the other nation, the Gentile people, you know, they can have salvation, So that's just a kind of quick uh, high point of some of the things we touched on last week as we continue to see God's defense of his gospel that has the power to save. As we continue in this study, uh, the weekly briefing for today, for this week, is the fact that the unfathomable ways of God should really be stirring us up. They should be motivating us because we are recipients of that mercy, but motivates to live and to serve in a sacrificial way according to God's will. Knowing who God is, knowing what God has done, and knowing how we are recipients of these indescribable blessings that should make us that much more want to be 
what God says we need to be and we ought to be and what we can be because of God's mercy and grace. With that, with that said, I wanted to, to begin you know, read a little bit in our section today, but I'm going to back up a little bit at verse 25. So have your Bibles open in Romans chapter 11. I'm going to back up to verse 25. And I'm going to read to the, just to the end of chapter 11. And our section today begins with that last, last little section of, of chapter 11, verse 30, 33 through 36. But I want you to see the connection between the closing thoughts of the pre, previous argument and how it flows into this, you know, these verses of praise. In verse 25, it reads, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with him when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been, have, have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches of both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? and Who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So let's get into our text for today. As we start there at the end of chapter 11, verses 33, 36, where you have a number of verses that are really amplifying the response of praise and when you think about it, the point is, is you know, God's impartial way of redeeming and saving sinners from all nations, from all people, God has made it possible that all can be saved. All ethnicities, doesn't matter. God's ways is really so much better than what men could ever think or do. I think that's kind of what he's trying to say here. You know, when we think about what, what has already been presented from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11 here, he said, and, and we, we think on that, we meditate on that, and we begin to understand what God has done to bring hope to a lost and dying world, and that he redeems and he saves sinners. You know, he, he says, man could not have thought this up. Man can't, can't do it any better. And what these verses really do, they really serve somewhat as a bridge in my mind. They serve as a bridge between you know, the first 11 chapters 
there are really a, an exposition of the saving power of the gospel of Christ. That the gospel is God's power and it can save people if they'll believe. Now, it's an obedient faith, but it can save people. And so that's chapter, you know, that's the first 11 chapters. And so now you got this, you know, these verses of praise. When I take all of that consideration, now we say, this is amazing. This, I just can't comprehend this. This is beyond you know, my imagination, is really what, what the, the Holy Spirit is communicating through, through Paul here. And it serves as a bridge between what the gospel can do to the fact that, okay, as a result, therefore, the practical exhortations that we are called to do, that is, we need, now, now, we need to live our faith. And that's what the rest of Romans is all about. Knowing what God has done and knowing how you are saved, he says, now live it. Live the faith to God in Christ. Because God's knowledge, God's wisdom, God's you know, judgments or his decisions, God's ways, they surpass man's ability and even man's knowledge to discover salvation for his own. Man cannot save himself. Man can't do that. And God you know, put man in, in the creation, in the universe, as, as a, in a sense, a pinnacle of creation. You know, all living things are under the dominion of mankind. Here is man in this very significant role and where God has been so mindful to, to in a sense, elevate him to this position and making him in his own image of all things. But even he, this man made in the image of God, cannot discover how to save himself, and man cannot save himself. That's where you come to this idea of the depth, of the unsearchableness, and of the unfathomableness of what God has done. What he has done is amazing. The fact that he chose men. And he chose a nation. He has chosen nations. All of this has been part of the plan of God to bring redemption in the world, to bring about a gracious plan of salvation. Yeah. The thing is, would you have done it the way God had done it? No. We wouldn't have. We wouldn't have done it. And our way wouldn't have succeeded. You know, we would have fallen on our, on our faces. And still be lost. But God, because he's God, and he has this perfect plan with the perfect Savior, you know, that offers perfect grace and mercy. And so he says, it is too great for you to know this. It is in a sense, you know, some version may even use the word instead of depth. They may say the high is the highness of it. You know, you no matter you know, it's so deep and it's so high, you know, you can't attain it. And you know, just just think of, think about the the creation, the universe that we live in. You know, think about the depths of the ocean and what we don't know and what we cannot attain. And you think about the 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 height of the universe and what we don't know. And what we will never attain. And we've learned a lot. You know, that 
example of creation in the universe does not even touch on the idea of the knowledge, the judgment, the wisdom, the ways of God to save lost souls like you and me. In a sense, it's incomprehensible. What we know and what we can understand is because God has told us. And God has explained to us. But without that, it's beyond us. It's past us tracing or finding out you know, this thing. Some version might say it talks about the inscrutableness of God's ways. And he quotes here in verse 34 and 35 a verse from Isaiah and a verse from the book of Job. Yeah, and the point is you know, here yeah, is to emphasize that nobody knows the mind of God. Nobody knows the will of God unless God communicates that. You know, and and here, here's part of the depth and the wisdom of God. God has. God has communicated his mind to you. He has communicated his will to you. And that's what Paul argues over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And it explains to us how the Holy Spirit's role plays a pivotal role in communicating the mind of God through chosen men, apostles and prophets, so that we could have the mind of God that God reveals to us. I want us to just go back and read a few verses in that Isaiah 40. I think it's just a beautiful little section. And it is, and it is a chapter that tends, tends to highlight in a general way just the greatness of God. And like the whole, just, you know, God is just so amazing. He is so great. He is so above us. And that kind of is the, the overall thought of the chapter, and as well as some other little you know, other, you know, thoughts that brought out. But there in verse 12, 13, and 14, I'm just going to read three verses in the 40th chapter of Isaiah. And it starts here with a question. And it says, or ask, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measuring, weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? There's our verse quoted in chapter you know, 11. And he continued to ask in verse 14, with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him the way of understanding? What's, what's, what's the answer to all those questions? Nobody but God. Only God is the one, to, in a sense, to hold the universe in his hand. And God does. The New Testament explains to us that God, through his Son, sustains the universe. Yeah. Scientifically, we know yeah, that by yeah, certain laws of science, what direction is the universe moving? It's dying. It's slowing down. Yeah. And eventually, it keeps on going. What happens? It stops, right? So we know from scientific observation that that's the direction that is going. And yet, 
Our solar system still functions like it's always done so that life is sustained here on earth and his image bearers could glorify the creator. God holds it. God sustains it. He says, you know, you know who has done this? And the point is, well, yeah, God, God is the one who has you know, measured the universe. So who's going who's gonna to tell God how to do something? Well, it's not going to be man. He's a creature made by God. And God's not going to consult man on how to do something the right way. Because man cannot even direct his own steps. In a sense, as Paul preached in Acts 17, when he's there in Athens, he talks about the God of the heavens that they, they didn't know, even though they had uh, an idol with that inscription on it. He said, well, I'm gonna, let me tell you about this God that you don't know. He, he's the real God. <laughs> he's the God of everything. You know, he's the one who's brought, you know, uh, man into existence and brought him to life, and we're all you know, we're all of the in the sense of the same blood. You know, he says that's the God that you need to know. But he says, but he doesn't live where he doesn't live in a physical temple. And he goes on to say, and he doesn't anything from you or me. Yeah. So, you know, what can we give to God that he needs? Nothing. God needs nothing from man, but man needs God. And God is worthy to receive his due from us. Not that he needs me, but he does love me. And he wants me to be with him in heaven. And so when you think about this, and once again, and that's, that's what chapters 1 through chapter 11 has all been about, to, to basically explain and reason how God of the universe loved mankind so much that he's provided a redeemer and a way that he could be saved, cleansed from his sins, a person who's dead can be made alive again. That's what chapters, you know, those first chapters are all about. And so therefore, chapter 11 ends with this idea of, wow, I just need to praise him. I just need to recognize my place and my role in this great scheme of things and how blessed I am and that, you uh, what I know by God is only because God has told me. It's not that I have discovered anything on my own. No, God has communicated his, his will to us so that we may know it. Leanne. I just wanted to say, um, yes, we should praise him. And yes, um, we don't know what God knows. But God loved us so much that he gave us his son because he looked on us as a pitiful creature and he felt compassion for us. He felt love for us. He didn't have to love us. He didn't need us for anything, but he felt love for us. And he yes. always mm -hmm. loved Israel and he always loved his nations. Mm -hmm. He loved them. He, he would beg for them to love him back. He would like literally be like on the ground begging for them to come back to him because he loved them so much. So you think about this God that made everything and he, all he wants is your heart, mind, and soul. Mm -hmm.
it's very little to pay for, for a God that, that loves you that much. Thank you. Yes. Good, some good thoughts there. And so as, as individuals who have heard this good news, you know, the point is, okay, we need to be stirred by this, you know, you know, that we are recipients of this blessings, we are recipients uh, of this gift. Our voices need to be you know, lifted up to this one whom we derive our existence and we derive our purpose. You know, and so, yeah, so to him you know, goes the glory because it's from him, through him, and to him all things are. And we're part of that. And that, like I say, that's a bridge that goes into this next section of Romans that is about, you know, practical exhortations, practical instruction about, now how, how does the recipient of mercy and grace give back to God what is his due? And, and so chapter you know, 12 begins by saying, well, these recipients of God's mercies should be moved to present their bodies, to present themselves as sacrifices alive to God. Think about it. Christians have been brought back to life. What are we told in Ephesians 2? That we were dead in what? In our sins. In sin, we are dead. Dead. And the wages that that will bring us in the end eternally is death. Eternal separation. Yeah. But through Christ, a perfect plan that is made available through God's Son where no matter what our background, what you know, uh, nation we're from, we can come to a knowledge of Christ, we can hear the gospel, and that gospel can lead us to salvation, and now we're a recipient. We're added to God's, you know, God's family. We talk about the idea of God's family tree in, in, in chapter 11, and we're grafted in by a spiritual adoption. And so here we are. We are the beneficiaries. Christians are beneficiaries of mercy, and as a beneficiary... You know, we should be moved to present to God what is worthy to God. You think about it. If, if you're a beneficiary to some, someone has left, somebody has left you a million dollars, you know, you know, do, do you, and, and, and so is there a sense that, okay, you, you feel indebted? I hope you would. <laughs> I hope you would feel some of that. If someone has, you know, that you had no right to that, you know. You, you, you were not an heir, but now you've, met, you've been made an heir. You, know, you don't deserve this. You've not earned this, but now suddenly you are, you are a beneficiary of this enormous gift. There should be a sense of gratitude that stirs in the sense to try to show that gratitude in the life that you now live forward. And what you and I have received in Christ is so much more than what all the money in the world would do for us. What we have in Christ is the hope of eternal life. In Christ, we have the assurance of eternal life. And so he says, okay, that's why in verse, verse one, after you say, okay, praise God, he's done this amazing thing. What he has done is just incomprehensible. It is unsearchable. It is so deep, so high. I can't comprehend every aspect of that. And so verse 1, verse 10, so, so therefore, 
Paul says, I urge you, brethren. And the idea of urging is a sense of pleading. You know, he's not demanding, you know. He's, in a sense, he's pleading. He says, and the point is, he's saying, do you, do you, do you comprehend now what, who you are in Christ and what you have in Christ? Do you, do you truly understand what this is all about? He says, so he says, so therefore, I urge you, you need to respond appropriately. You know? And so, he's, so the whole point is, okay, you need, to re, you need to present your body as a sacrifice, as alive to God. And as the psalmist said, you know, the mercies of God are immeasurable. They really are. And it has always been that way. Even the mercy shown to Israel time and time again throughout their existence in the Old Testament was a constant revelation of the, the depth and the high, height of the mercy of God for sinners. I like the example in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 14. It's the, it's the story of King David when he commanded a census of the nation to be taken. And God did not want him to do that, but David sinned in this moment. And so there's going to be some consequences. And so, you know, so, Dave, you know, so a message is delivered to David about consequences of what he has done and and in that there's basically, basically he's given three choices God says okay I'll give you three choices he says you're, you're going to suffer because of this but I'll, I'll, I'll let you pick which kind of suffering you 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 want to experience all right and it is in that you know, 24th chapter of 1 Samuel, verse 14, where you've got David's response to what God has delivered to him. And, he, and David talks about the point of his mercies. And so it says, then David said to Gad, Gad was the prophet that delivered the message to, to the king. And so David says to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall in the hand of men. He says, this is too hard for me to, this is too hard for me to pick. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going I'm to put, my, put my, my life in the lives of my, my, of my people in God's mercies. Let God let God decide. Let God choose. He says, don't, don't turn me over to the hands of men. Because yeah. men, at best, are not absolutely just, are they? Even when, when we attempt to be just, it's imperfect. But God is perfect in his justice and abundant in his mercy. And so today he says, this is just too much for me. You know, and he says, put me in the hands of the merciful God. Yeah, let, let, let him decide. And it illustrates to me the idea of the greatness of God's mercy. You know, even in his judgments, even when the judgment is poured out, it is with mercy that judgment is tempered. And the point is here in, in the first few verses of this chapter is, you know, here we are made alive in Christ and we, we are to be presenting ourselves 
We are to bring ourselves to God consecrated and devoted to him, devoted to his will, devoted to his purpose. Now, that's not a new concept, that you're presenting yourself to God. Once again, much of what is talked about in, you know, from chapter 9 onward, really, is things that have already been you know, introduced or discussed in the first eight chapters of Romans. But back in chapter 6, you know, chapter 6, where it talks about you know, dying to sin and being made alive again, in chapter 6, it talks about, how, okay, now that you're freed from sin, what are you supposed to be doing? He said, well, you need to be presenting yourself in a way that's appropriate to the fact that God just brought you back to life. He says, you were dead, and I just raised you up. He says, okay, now, now you need to present yourself in a way that's yeah, appropriate to that kind of gift, that heirship, that inheritance. And so in chapter 6, you look there in verse 13, just one illustration. He says, he says, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. He says, that's what we need to understand. When we, pres- we, you know, he, God has done so much for us He's allowed us to be adopted into his family. We are now his children because he loves us. He says, okay, now, so present yourselves alive to God. Under the law of Moses, when the animal sacrifice was, was offered, how, was it, how did, was it presented at the priest? Huh? Perfect without blindness, spot, spotless. How else? They brought the sacrifice to, to the priest. It was alive. When it was brought before God you know, at the temple, to, you know, you know, it was alive. Then it was sacrificed. And then it was, but it was presented alive to them, to the priest, and then they, they, they would kill the animal, and then that sacrifice would be carried out according to the instruction of the law. But, the animal was presented alive and it was completely devoted to God. It was a total commitment. And it's not, and it's not a decision the animal got to decide. But it was a total commitment. And that's the point here. Present yourself as a sacrifice alive to God. Totally. Another Old Testament example. Uh, the sacrifice of Samuel. We don't usually use that phrase. Little boy Samuel, the sacrifice of Samuel. What kind of sacrifice was it? It was a total sacrifice of service to God. Hannah, the mother, begged for a child. She was barren. And she said, God, if you will, if you will give me a child, give me a son, you know, I will then present him back to you. And, and he will serve you all the days of his life. Yeah. He was a living sacrifice. His whole life was devoted to, to God. Yeah. From the moment that he was presented on, he finished. I mean, he was still a boy when he was given to you know, Eli there, grew up there, and then lived his life devoted to God. And so here we are, we are mercifully spared from God's wrath. We deserve to die because of our sin. Spiritually speaking, we have all committed crimes. 
and a penalty is due. But we have been mercifully spared from God's wrath, and so what should you know? So now, what should be my response? Well, the point is, you know, we should live totally for the Redeemer. We need to live totally for the Redeemer. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, the greatest commandment, over here, yeah, yeah, Bruce, brother Bruce. Yeah, Matthew twenty-two thirty, yeah, thirty-seven, the greatest commandment is to love how. Right. You know, sum that up, how much of you? All of you, right, okay. Well, the idea of, of sacrifice, and my brothers and sisters may help me with this, my brain's not working, but in one passage, God says, what would you give me? The whole earth is mine. Right. The only thing that we can give God is our heart, mm -hmm. because unless we give it to him, he can't have it. Right. And so here, we sacrifice so to speak, our hearts to shun all the things that the world offers us to get to God who offers us far, yes. far better reward. Right. Thank you for, so much for that. Anyone else want to add to this idea of the, you know, the fullness of this sacrifice? When you think about just, you know, the, the description found there in, in verse, in verses, you know, particularly verse one, the idea, first it's a sacrifice, you know, a sacrifice involves a cost. But it's a cost which reflects the reverence and love that you have for God. It's a cost that should reflect the reverence and love you have for God. But also it's a living sacrifice. And so it's a, it's a sacrifice that's alive. So in that sense, it's a daily endeavor. Yeah, Tali over here. It's a daily endeavor that you know, shows your devotion to God. It's a holy sacrifice because it's a sacred thing. It's, it's a sacred setting apart, you know, to the one who's worthy of this. Tali. I was just going to add, it's a willing sacrifice. Yes. Not, not a compulsion, but a willingness. Yeah. Right. And I think that relates to the way Paul introduces this, you know, latter half of Romans when he says, therefore, you know, I beseech you, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. You know, he says, look what God has done for you, therefore then you sh we should willingly, lovingly present ourselves in this way. It's an acceptable sign, and so emphasize the idea it's well-pleasing to God as well. But the point is, this is something that is expected. It's an expected presentation to God in the sense that in the way we live. And I really like when he goes on to talk about how, which, some first say, which is your spiritual service of worship, which is your reasonable, which is, you know, or rational. The Greek word is there in the, in the brackets there, you know, you know, looks like the word logic to me. Yeah. So what God is asking of us, what God is asking of us is logical. If we understand who God is, and we understand what God has done, and we understand what God is still doing in our lives, he says, this is reasonable. This is rational. You know, you know, when it comes to the idea of what kind of service, what kind of worship we present to him. You know, it's, as sacrifice is nothing less than what's suitable you know, to the one who's worthy of this. See, don't, don't present to him anything less than what's suitable to God. But for that to happen, there has to be change. Verse 2, a change. And so you have the idea of transformation, you know, very similar to you know, the idea of metamorphosis. 
And so your whole idea is, okay, we're not going to be a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to God without changing our form. And, the, and he starts out, okay, don't be conformed. That is, you know, we are not to copy the ways of the world. We're not to fashion or shape our lives to the world's patterns, the world's fashions, the world's trends, the world's thinking. 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17 says, do not love what? Do not love the world nor the things in the world. And he tells you what those things are. Three things. He says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Don't do that. That's the, that's the love of the world. And when we choose that path, we are conforming to the world. And, and if we're going to present ourselves properly to God because of what he has so mercifully given me. You know, I cannot take that shape, the shape of the world. But rather, I've got to change my shape. I've got to change myself. And that's kind of where you emphasize in verse 2. So that means, go back to kind of keying in on the side of the heart. You know, it involves also the idea of you're going, to cha- you're going to have to change your thinking. If you're going to change your outward form, you're going to have to change your inward form. You're going to have to renew your mind. You're going to have to renew your heart. You're going to have to renew your spirit because you're not going to bring about all the necessary changes if, you, if you're not changing the way you think. And if, that thing, and if that thing is not in accord with God's will, then it's not going to be acceptable to God. But the point is, when God's word and God's will and God's purpose is fully, totally incorporated in us, so that we're just like verse 1 says, yeah, we are now presenting our lives, our very bodies themselves, to be living, holy, acceptable sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah, when, when we do that, the effect is going to be good. The effect is going to be God's purpose now is being fulfilled and carried in us. The effect's going to be we're going to be well-pleasing to God now. So that's just the first two verses that are introducing, you know, basically the rest of the chapter. He said, all the things that he talks about very specifically is all expounding on, okay, so how do I do that? How do I go about presenting myself and transforming myself so that God receives the one thing I can give him, that he's worthy to give, that he's worthy to receive from me because of what he's, what he's done for me. And it begins, and we're not going to be able to finish this little section this morning, but it begins with this idea, okay, if you've been adopted to God's family tree, and so here you've been adopted and made a child of God, he says, so that means you you are part of something that's bigger than yourself. You are a member of a relationship, and so it starts talking about how, you know, all members of Christ, therefore, need to use their abilities, use their gifts from God to benefit Christ's body. Presenting sacrificially our bodies to our Redeemer includes, it's not the only thing, but it includes fulfilling our individual responsibilities as members of Christ. I'm a member of Christ because of God's mercy and grace. And what made that assess to me is my faith that submitted to my King in my Lord, in my Savior. 
But once, once I enter that relationship, now I am part of something where I have some obligations and responsibilities, not only to God, but also to others who are my spiritual siblings. They're my spiritual brothers and sisters. And that's part of presenting you know, our bodies a sacrifice that's alive to God. You, know, you think about it over in Ephesians 2, it talks about how you know, we are individual joints called to supply that which brings about growth to the body of Christ. And so we're going to have to stop there. We'll talk a little bit you know, the idea of, you know, yes, there's differences in that and, and how those uh, differences should you know, be manifested. Thank you very much for your attention. Appreciate that. <clears throat>